Ezekiel chapter 19, as we continue working through the book of Samuel together. If you do not have a Bible, there should be some, hopefully, some Bibles underneath the chair in front of you. We refer to those as our pew Bibles, even though we have chairs, and uh, this passage can be found on 227, page 227 of the pew Bible. First Samuel chapter 19. Please follow along as I read from God's word. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled, and fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair as its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed, with the pillow of goat's hair as its head. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus, and let my enemy go, so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go, why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped. And he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. In Ramah. When, then Saul sent messengers to take David. 
And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Ziku, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. And he went there to Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And he went, and as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too, this is Saul, prophesied before Samuel and laid naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Hear the word of the Lord. Very interesting chapter we have before us in 1 Samuel chapter 19. If you've been with us or if you haven't, I just want to, by way of reminder, kind of get us up to speed. We have reached the point in the story where David has been anointed by Samuel the prophet in Bethlehem to be the king of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord has come upon him for this future task. That's 1 Samuel chapter 16. Though David was still but a youth, he had come to public attention, if you remember in chapter 17, by the remarkable feat of slaying the great giant, Goliath. Because of this amazing f- defeat of Goliath, he had, gr- had, had really raised much notoriety from the people and uh, had come into King Saul's service. We see that in chapter 18. At first, Saul, like many, many others, was positively inclined toward David. But David's remarkable success against Israel's enemies began to do something in Saul's life, began to uh, grow terrible jealousy and fear. And that fear became hatred, as we saw in chapter 18, as it unfolded. And Saul had already made numerous unsuccessful attempts to get rid of David himself. And what we see in chapter 19 are an additional four specific attempts that we will look at of of trying to, to kill David. The tension through the rest of 1 Samuel arises from the fact that you have a king who has been rejected by God, that is Saul, still in power, while the king who has been chosen by God, David, has yet to begin his reign. So we're going to see this tension play out before us as 1 Samuel continues. The story of Saul now becomes really a a study, if you like, um, looking at a, a will that is against the Lord and against his anointed. So 1 Samuel chapter 19 explores this conflict between the will of King Saul and really the will of God to preserve his anointed. And so we want to, this morning, look at each of these um, four attempts by King Saul and really the, the title of the sermon, A Mighty Fortress, the emphasis, and I'm so thankful that Really, the the movement this morning in corporate worship has been this reminder 
of God's deliverance, God's protection. He is our refuge and strength, our help in, in times of trouble. And this chapter really just weaves so well into that reality that we see in David's life in particular. God is a mighty fortress. I want you to see at the end of chapter 18 what's noted in the beginning of chapter 19. So at the end of 18, there's a striking description recorded which supplies really this amazing um, emphasis on what God is doing in this man's life, in David's life, a man after God's own heart. We read, Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. The name was highly esteemed. And then you see in verse 1 of chapter 19, Saul spoke to Jonathan and all of his servants, and, and really the mission now is to kill David. And I want to just emphasize here the vivid, um, grave contrast presented between that last sentence and the first sentence of this chapter. And for us who are looking at this through a spiritually-minded lens, I don't want us to miss this. Uh, there is something important with his name being highly esteemed, God's anointed being highly esteemed. And when the name of the anointed is highly esteemed, we should be preparing ourselves that the enemies will rage. When, when one of God's anointed is lifted high, the enemies of the world, the nations will will rage, and we see that happening in, in, in being personified here by, by Saul. So the picture here is a picture that's been happening since Genesis chapter 3. Nothing is more uh, calculated to call into action than the enmity between the serpent against the woman's seed. That when the name is extolled, the name of God, one who represents him, you see this response this rage of those who are anti-God, those who are at enmity with God. It, it was the same in the days of the apostles. We actually looked at these uh, passages in adult Sunday school when they announced in chapter 4 of Acts, the, the disciples, the apostles, there is none, no other name under heaven given among men whereby one must be saved. It is a declaration that there is only one name to be highly esteemed and one name to actually experience salvation through, namely the Lord Jesus Christ and the response of the Jewish leaders. They command them in chapter 5 to not speak the name of Jesus anymore. They, uh, of course, did not uh, obey that command. The apostles were, were beaten and commanded again and again, do not speak the name of Jesus. And so we see what's presented to us at the end of chapter 18 really played out as David's name is highly esteemed. We see Saul wreak havoc and want to eliminate or um, destroy this highly esteemed anointed one of the Lord. So again, we're looking at four specific episodes where God delivers his anointed where Saul attempts to destroy, attempts to kill, attempts to kill. The first display of God's deliverance and protection comes in verses 1 through 7. 
And really, you look at Jonathan, Saul's son, and this is a test for Jonathan. The bond of loyalty and friendship that was made by Jonathan in chapter 18, this covenant with David, is really being tested right away in chapter 19 by his own father. So there's a situation presented to Jonathan where an innocent life is to be taken. And there's, there's much application here as we look at this. This situation is where compliance is not an option for Jonathan, as he knows clearly that what the king, the one who is um, bearing the sword, has authority, is asking him to do something that is out of bounds. He is being commanded to do what God prohibits. In this case, it's taking innocent life. And so we see Jonathan refused to obey King Saul's order to kill David, since that would clearly be murder. Now, there is a, a pastor and author, Philip Kaiser, who has written on 1 Samuel 19, in particular, Jonathan's response to the king that I think is really helpful here. He identifies what Jonathan does as interposition. He's interposed between the king and one who is innocent. So interposition is any act of protection by coming in between an aggressor and a person or body that will otherwise be harmed. So you have Jonathan as a prince, a lesser magistrate, so to speak, lesser one of authority, the king's number one, Jonathan number two, so to speak. You have Jonathan, a prince, interposed himself on behalf of David in defiance of King Saul's order to kill him. Now, it's important to see what Jonathan does. Jonathan protests what the king's actions are. He protests to the king. He appeals to his father. And this is really helpful. He is confronting evil with direct appeals to the word of God. So Jonathan did this frankly when he came before the king, as we see in these verses, informing Saul, his father. And I just want to note how difficult this must have been for Jonathan knowing that he has to stand for what is right and stand up against his father. He, he informs Saul that his proposals amounted to sin. He is very clear. Let not the king sin, he warned in verse 4. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing King David without cause? The warning about innocent blood is, is rooted in Scripture, referred to in Deuteronomy chapter 19, which curses the guilt of bloodshed for all who slay the innocent. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 24 and 25, also applies God's curse against anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret or conspires to shed innocent blood. So in our response to, to evil today, Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, should seek to, to thwart the plans of evil with this type of rooted-in-God's-word rebuke. And it's also helpful to think about how God has orchestrated government. We have local government. As we see things that seem far away, as, as uh, Pastor Phil referenced what's happening within the Supreme Court, we have opportunities to go to our local magistrates, our local leaders, and plead from God's word what is right and what is wrong, and pray for them, as we will see David's response in this chapter in particular. I wanted us to look at how Jonathan deals with 
saw the king in this setting and, and glean from it because it's God's chosen mean in this particular setting to deliver. This is how God chose to deliver David in this particular situation, through the prince pleading with the king. The will of Saul that had been set against the Lord and against his anointed in this particular setting had not prevailed. It had been turned around, we read, not for very long, but at least for a moment, by the words of Jonathan. He speaks words of goodness, rightness, reasonableness. There is wisdom because it's rooted in God's word, this plea to the king. Okay, number two, the second way in which the Lord protects and delivers his anointed. In verses 8 through 10. So it's quite amazing that there is this turnabout with King Saul, so much so that Jonathan's able to go back and get David and bring him back into Saul's court. After Saul had sat down with Jonathan and his closest servants and made this plan, this declaration, I want this man killed, we now see him actually welcoming David back into his court. Quite, quite amazing. And so in verses 8 through 10, we see that a battle begins again with the constant enemy of Israel, the Philistines. And the word usage is really important here. The word struck is used as David goes out and defeats the Philistines. And then the irony is that that same word struck is used when Saul, being again tormented by a, a harmful spirit from the Lord, strikes the wall. He struck the wall with his spear against the one who had just defeated the actual enemy of Israel. The irony is thick here in this scene, but again we see Saul turning against the Lord's anointed. Just for a moment to emphasize what David's about. David incurs Saul's disdain through ongoing faithfulness. He goes out and again leads the troops to victory on behalf really of, of the God of Israel, but, but Saul is still reigning as king. On behalf of the king, he goes and strikes down the Philistines. This, this is the third time we have heard of a, a harmful spirit from the Lord afflicting Saul. First, we saw it in chapter 16. We learned that the harmful spirit from the Lord tormented Saul as a consequence of the spirit of the Lord departing from him. And this was an aspect of God's judgment upon Saul and rejection of Saul for his clear disobedience. He had opportunities to be found faithful, and he again and again disobeyed God's law, God's rule, God's direction. The spear is thrown, and again, he failed, and David fled and escaped that night. Some may be going, okay, Saul must have horrendous aim. There's so much more happening here. Saul was a warrior. And I want you to hear this because it's so important. God continued to preserve his servant David. 
Which is why Saul's spear continued to miss the young hero, even at short range. We're going to see a little bit later God continuing again and again to protect and to save his anointed. But it's, it's important to note, David at this point, as he flees from this spear heading towards his head, David never again would return to Saul's court. This was the last time that he would be in the court while Saul is throwing spears and he's holding a lyre. This was the end of his time in the king's court with Saul. Now, number three, the third time that God protects and delivers his anointed. And it comes by the hand of his wife, David's wife, Michael. David's wife is used to protect him from a bloodthirsty ruler at this point, which is her father. This is Saul's daughter that was given to David in marriage. So we see this in verses 11 through 17, this whole uh, mini-episode of God's deliverance using David's wife. So again, I, I want us to look at this, these situations that are presented and, and glean from them. There are situations where compliance is not an option. When innocent life is at stake, somehow, we're not told exactly how, but, but his wife caught wind of what Saul was about to do, was going to have David killed the next day because she tells him very clearly, this is what you must do in order for you to not die tomorrow morning. And this reminds us of other biblical examples. The Hebrew midwives are an excellent example of individual citizens who come between an aggressor, the king of Egypt, and a person or body that would otherwise be harmed, the Hebrew baby boys, if you remember in Exodus chapter 1. We hear of Rahab and how she defied and deceived the authorities in order to save the lives of the Hebrew spies in Joshua chapter 2. And she was praised for it in Hebrews chapter 11 and in James chapter 2. Both Rahab and David's wife let them down through a window, which is an interesting detail. And so we, we know in Joshua chapter 2 that the homes were built into the city wall of Jericho. And it makes you think maybe in Saul's kingdom at this point, David lived in that same similar type of housing we're not exactly sure, but she lets him out of the window to, es to escape as well. And just briefly, just thinking about um, his wife, Michael, put in place some delaying tactics, some strategy here to, to allow time for David to leave and Saul not to, to get him. And we, we look at how she deceived her father over something called household gods. That's what she used to create this deception. Uh, this is the same word used in Genesis 31 that reminds us of Laban's daughter, Rachel. She also used a household god. Uh, and if you remember the story, he kind of set it under her. It was during her um, menstrual cycle to deceive Laban that she didn't actually have it. Uh, there, there is a whole kind of um, road that we could go down here of thinking about if this displayed where Michael's spiritual allegiance lie, where there. Uh, was there worshiping of false gods happening here? We're not given all of that. We do see later that her and David's relationship doesn't go so well. 
But here, she's using this household idol to, to we've, we've all seen this in a movie. You, you see them put something in a bed that makes it look like a body, and then she took goat's hair and put it on a pillow and made it look like there was a man, David, sleeping there. And she used that as deception to deceive her father. She added that he was sick lying in bed. And so we have David's wife deceiving her father, King Saul, enabling David to escape. The Lord had other services for David to perform. This is where I was wanting to, to, to help us see in both the first case, the second case, and the third case of deliverance. A.W. Pink wrote this many years ago, and I think it's, it's so very helpful when thinking about God's hand upon his people. A.W. Pink wrote, The servant of God is immortal until the work allotted him has been done. So thinking back to Saul's spear, was it just that Saul had horrible aim? How was, was his wife able to deceive Saul, David's wife? All of these experiences could very well have not worked, and David ends up dying, but that's not the case. And I, I love this. I think it's so true. And this actually empowers, emboldens the people of God. The servant of God is immortal until the work allotted to him has been done. Do you realize how, how freeing that is in the Christian life? Believing that God is exhaustively sovereign over every molecule in this world. There are no rogue molecules, says R.C. Sproul. Once said R.C. Sproul. That reality that you can go and do all that God has called you to do in boldness, knowing that nothing will harm you outside of God's will and purpose. You are immortal, so to speak, until your work here is done. That's, that's an amazing freedom to walk in. Whose hands do we uh, rest in? The one who created the heavens and the earth. The one that sustains our every breath is holding us in his hands. That radically changes the way you approach this life. When you hear about people going to the ends of the earth and it's like, that looks like reckless abandonment. How are they able to go and just give all that they have and, and go to a place that is so foreign and so hard? I believe they're, they're walking in this reality that God has them. And their time will be as long as he wants their time to be. He is appointed our very day and hour. And David, we're seeing that play out here. There were many opportunities for King Saul to slay David, and yet God is protecting. God is moving him along. Now, in particular, this scene where Saul sends messengers to his house, to basically function like assassins that are going to take him out the very next morning. This is where scripture is so amazing how it, it, it comes together. Psalm 59 is David writing about this particular situation. So it's so very helpful for us to see from God's word, just reading the first four verses. The heading of that psalm, inspired, we believe, tells us that this is when Saul sent and they watched the house to kill him. So David writes these words, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. 
Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie and wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. David realizes in this situation, he is guiltless. He, has, he is not deserving. He is innocent. And he is crying out to God to be his mighty fortress, his refuge in this very time of trouble. And what we see in this particular psalm, in Psalm 59, as you continue to read through it, is a perfect example of how those who live by faith respond to this type of um, injustice, oppression, persecution. We pray. We cry out to the one who is able to deliver us. And this is a perfect example from David, his very self, uh, in the midst of horrible trials where his life is on the line. He is being hunted. It leads him to prayer. It leads him to cry out to the God who is able to give justice where there is no justice available on earth. And so as he escapes, he flees to Ramah to find Samuel and tells him all that Saul has done. And this leads to the fourth attempt to kill David. And we see God's protection and deliverance so clearly. The surprise for everyone was that as the messengers from Saul approached Samuel's band of prophets, the Spirit of God overpowered them. And they began to prophesy. Now, I want to agree with most commentators that I was reading. Whatever this was precisely, we're not exactly sure. But it seems to have meant that they were no longer capable of carrying out the mission that they were on. The king's command was to go and kill this man. Their, their, um, their response, because of the work of the Spirit of God, is that they were no longer capable to actually follow through, follow through with the king's command. Three times, King Saul sends these messengers. And it is really as though the Spirit of the Lord has set up a protective hedge or shield around the one Saul was determined to destroy. Now, in the first three examples of God's protection and deliverance, it's it's not as clear. It's, it's, he's working through people, Jonathan and, and uh, David's wife. But here, we see God's hand clearly put on display. So if, if you've been a little fuzzy about God being the mighty fortress, God delivering his servant, here we see God just radically taking hold of these messengers, causing them to prophesy, making them incapable of actually achieving their purpose. And so, Saul takes matters into his own hands. You've probably heard this, this phraseology, if you want something done right, you just got to do it yourself. Well, he then goes and attempts to do it himself. And so off Saul went to Ramah. Now, the description here is beautiful, and I don't want us to miss this. The powerful king was utterly powerless before the power of the Spirit of God. So Saul here did unwillingly 
what Jonathan, his son, had done the previous chapter. So if you remember in chapter 18, verse 4, we read this. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now we have King Saul being disrobed just as Jonathan was earlier and it testifies that the mark of royal office, God's hand of anointing is no longer on the house of Saul but has been moved to David. And God, by a very unusual means, accomplishes not only preventing David from being slain, but putting on display before everybody what he is doing in Saul's house and moving it to David's house. Where earlier the Spirit of God had marked Saul out and empowered him for a specific task, that's 1 Samuel chapter 10, and there was a proverb, pro- proverb expressed, if you remember, Saul then prophesied with the, with the prophets. It, it, it expressed surprise, this proverb that was made known. Is Saul also among the prophets? That was early on. Now we see this same proverb coming about, but in a very different way. This powerful king has been brought into submission. He is no longer able to even come close to achieving his goals, his ambitions of slaying David. He is naked, laid out before them, day and night prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord had broken him and thwarted his his wicked schemes to kill David. How amazing is our God? In all of these examples, God works in so many different ways and means to accomplish his purposes. Those who set themselves against the Lord's anointed, this is a a reoccurring theme, will not prevail. This should build up the household of faith, the people of God. Those who set themselves up against the Lord will not prevail. So we've been in Psalm 51. You can clearly go and see the ties to Psalm 2. I would encourage you to go and read Psalm 2 in light of what we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 19. But as we look at Psalm 59, where David wrote about this particular situation, we hear things like this in verses 11 through 13 of that psalm. David crying out, Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. Let them be trapped in their pride. Consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more. And it was like the outworking of that prayer that he pleaded before God Almighty was being answered in how Saul was laid naked before him, prophesying day and night. So in each case of this chapter, if you're just looking at it, maybe with just physical eyes, if you you don't have God's revelation before you, but you're just given the facts, you have this king Saul, who seems to have the power, he is the one who is on the throne in Israel. He's the one that has all the servants to accomplish his tasks that he has, his mission to to kill David. While David really only has the commitment of a friend, Jonathan, and his wife, Saul had the weapons. He had a spear that could penetrate through David while David is standing there holding a musical instrument. Saul had many messengers to send to Ramah, 
while David only had an old prophet, Samuel. And we hear this from Psalm 59, but you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you, O God. You are my fortress. My God and his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. But you, O Lord, will laugh at them. I don't know about you this morning, but I I need to be reminded of these realities when we, just with our physical eyes, see the circumstances of this world and get, get so discouraged, where it seems hopeless, where there seems to be power that is too strong, and we lose sight. And David in Psalm 59 And here in our passage in in 1 Samuel 19 is reminding us, this is is our daily reminder to to move our gaze away from kind of self-focus or or just the the external circumstances and and once again point them on the sovereignty of God, the power of God, the might of our God, the strength of our God. I will watch for you, for you, O God, are my fortress. Man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. We could say that same thing about circumstances. Man looks at the outside circumstances, but God is working in ways that we cannot see. God, through this chapter, was working in ways that David himself could probably have never have imagined that, that, this, that these would be the ways that God would deliver him and protect him while King Saul is standing there wanting him dead. Just for for a few moments, I want us to think about David's rise to the throne. In light of God working in ways that we don't normally think would be, according to our eyes, the right way or the best way, think about this. This is how David moves towards his promotion. He is having to flee and escape the king of Israel. That's probably not how he in his mind, had thought through, this is how the story of my anointing as king is going to play out. He had been faithful to the king. He had, he had tried to be um, found uh, spotless and do all that he could to please the king of Israel, and yet this is how Saul is responding to him. So David is forced to leave the courts. He's escaping. He's fleeing. And we see that this is how God is orchestrating his promotion. Very different than what the world would want to see as kind of your your steps to to success, your steps to whatever you aspire to, and yet God is moving in ways that are different than our ways, and what what we realize is they're better than our ways. Paul Tripp, one of my professors in seminary, talks a lot about the theology of uncomfortable grace. And he says it better than I can. God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. Think about David's life. God uses all of these circumstances, how hard and difficult they were, in order to make him the shepherd king that he has pointed him to be. 
Think about all the psalms that are penned by this man who endured so much hardship. God's people for thousands and thousands of years are reaping the benefit of this inspired word. God, by the Holy Spirit, carrying this man along to pen these psalms that would be so good for our souls as we deal with the difficulties of this life. This is the theology of uncomfortable grace. In case you did not hear it clearly, God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. God often moves in our lives in ways that we do not expect. So David is being pushed out and fleeing, and that's the way that he is promoted. We look at the Lord Jesus Christ, his crucifixion is his enthroning. The crucifixion of Christ is actually Christ conquering. How very different God's ways are from our ways. The people of Israel were wanting Jesus to come into Jerusalem and, and physically bring in the army and rule and reign of God right there and then. And they weren't able to see that through the cross, this was his way of being exalted. This was his way of conquering. And so Jesus triumphs over the principalities and powers, and he does it through Calvary's cross. He's arrested, he's betrayed, he's denied by his own. He is taken to the authorities. They spit on him, they strike him, they pull out parts of his beard. They place a crown of thorns on his head and drive stakes into his hands and to his feet. What is that? That is God conquering the world and saving sinners like you and me. God's ways are not what we would expect. But we see the beautiful plan of his redemption unfold. And it is marvelous. And it, it takes us back. It should push us to our knees in praise and worship as we reflect on, even in our own lives, what God is accomplishing. He who began a good work in us is faithful to bring it to completion until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it may not look the way that you think it should look, but we have strong confidence that he is a mighty fortress. He is our deliverer and protector, and he will accomplish his perfect plan for each of us and his kingdom. I want to end by just reading the last couple verses of Psalm 59. But I will sing of your strength, I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Let us pray. Father, you are so good and you do good. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would apply these truths to our hearts as we have looked at 1 Samuel chapter 19 and have seen so very clearly your protection and deliverance of your anointed. Father, may we be encouraged, reminded of who truly is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who is sovereign over all, and who is so good. Father, that your purpose is perfect in our lives. Your plan cannot be thwarted. 
Father, I pray that that would, that would bolster our faith. And Lord, as we are reminded in Psalm 2, if there are those in this room this morning who have not bowed the knee, who do not see you as Lord and King, may they understand, Father, that they must kiss the Son lest they die. Father, that Jesus Christ is the one who has made a way for sinners to be forgiven, to be redeemed, to receive the gift of eternal life. And when he comes again, there will be judgment. Father, there is a reality that he is the one who truly is the only fortress. And may we all run to him this morning as our refuge and strength, we pray. Amen.